you have your Bibles, why don't you open them to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And if you haven't been with us, uh, we started a short series in the Psalms earlier in the summer. Uh, we just had like a couple messages and then we're going to continue that for the next few weeks until everyone else gets back. And then once they get back, we'll do something different. Um, but we'll be in the Psalms until then. Uh, whether or not you were with us for those first couple messages, you probably know that the Psalms are a unique portion of Scripture. Right? One of the more obvious things, it's, it's written in poetry rather than prose. Uh, the Psalms were Israel's prayer book back in the day. And they were written intended to be read or sung out loud uh, during corporate worship, like kind of what we're doing right now. But more significantly, the Psalms are kind of this unique portion of Scripture because they give us this perspective and they teach us what it looks like and what it sounds like to live life in this fallen world. Right? It teaches us uh, what it looks like, what it sounds like to walk through seasons of suffering and hardship. Uh, it gives us the words and the language to ask the hard questions of life. And it does all of that, and this is the key part, it does all of that with God at the center of your life. Right? Processing through this craziness that life is, life is with God at the center. Now, if you are any sort of decent friend or counselor, uh, then you know that when someone, say your friend comes up to you, right, and they share like this issue that they're going through, this burden that they're struggling with, um, that most of the time, there's not like a single silver bullet solution, right? There's not just like one piece of counsel that you can give to them that's going to fix everything that they just shared with you, right? And if you think that's the case, um, there's a counselor training class coming up in a couple months. You can sign up for that. But why is that true? Well, it's because life is complicated, right? Life is complicated. People are three-dimensional, and most of the time, there is a lot more going on than just the presenting problem. There's a lot more going on than just the things that they've shared with you. And here at Lighthouse, we talk about this often, and the categories that we use to kind of describe everything that's going on uh, are these three S words, right? We say, uh, we are all sinners, sufferers, and saints. Okay, I've probably said this like, five times in the past five messages, but sinners, sufferers, and saints, right? We are all, uh, all three of those identities simultaneously, we're going through life as, three of the, as all three of those things. And I think the Psalms, maybe more than any other portion of scripture, they show us that reality, right? Like that's on full display. And more specifically, it shows us how to process through life with all of these complexities in this relationship with God. And this is what it sounds like. And like, think about this. this. The Psalms were used for corporate worship. Okay, like this was meant to be read out loud, sung out loud. This isn't even like the psalmist's private prayers. Right? This is like the stuff that was meant to be read out loud for everyone to hear. And so just imagine, like, this is how people, these are how the psalmist, the people of God, process through life. This is the thoughts that were going through their heads. And I think what we learn from that is we're not called to figure it all out. We're not called to like, tidy ourselves up before we come to God. Rather, the Psalms show us that God is the place, he is the person that we need to go to to figure it all out. Right? He's the place, he's the person that we need to process these things with. And the Psalms are the divinely inspired reflections of the people of God 
as they consider the world around them, outside of them, but also within them, right? the world in their hearts. And like I said, they do this with God at the center. And tonight we're in Psalm 139. This is a well-known, probably one, one of the more well-known psalms. Um, and let me, or we're going to read through this, but uh, it's a long psalm, and I don't want to hear myself for 24 verses, so uh, I actually want four volunteers. Uh, can I get four volunteers? And I would like your help to read through this psalm. So anyone. Awesome. Thank you. Why don't you come up here? What's your name, by the way? Jesse? Justin. Justin. Cool. Nice to meet you, man. All right. Can I get three more? Thank you, Justin, for being the first. Three more volunteers. I think my friend will do it. Yeah? All right. Bring your friend up. Dude, I like that. What's your name? Holord. Holord. Okay, cool. Oh, I, I think uh, you met some of the pastors. They were mentioning you guys. Yeah, cool. All right. Can I get two more? These brand new people to Beacon are willing to volunteer. I think, yeah, Jacob and Joyce. Want to All right. <laughs> Welcome, Jacob and Joyce. Dude, I like how you do things. All right. So um, if you guys look at Psalm 139, it's broken into four sections, okay? Um, uh, it's verses 1 through 6, verses 7 to 12, verses 13 to 18, and then verses 19 224. Okay, I got a mic here for you guys. Um, so you're going to read verses 1 to 6. Okay. Um, Hollard, you're going to, Hollard, right? Yes. Okay. 7 to 12, uh, Jake 13 to 18, and then Joyce 19 to 24. All right? Cool. cool. You guys have ESV? Yes. Yeah? All right. I didn't bring my Bible. I didn't know you. No, it's okay. All right. Why don't you lead us? First okay. one. Uh, is it on? Uh, it should be on. Hello. Oh, well, you can just. Yeah, I'll just project. Yeah. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from go from your spirit, or where, sh where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost, uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about, to, about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for, you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, and I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God, O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Uh, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I 
take them with secret places and count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. All right. Um, Psalm 139, I think, is one of the most theologically rich and yet is, at the same time, one of the most intimately personal psalms in the, in the entire Bible, right? And uh, it talks about God's transcendence, like he is so far above us, and talks about God's imminence, uh, imminence with an A, uh, his, his nearness to us. And we learn in this psalm about what we uh, call some of God's incommunicable attributes. And what we mean by that is, like, it's not, there's no parallel in us as human beings, right? Like, uh, it talks about God's omniscience. He knows everything. His omnipresence, he's everywhere. Uh, his omnipotence, he's all-powerful. Uh, and, yeah, this is what this psalm talks about. We learn about the attributes of God. But the only thing about that uh, is, and actually, a lot of sermons, if you listen to it on this passage, it, like, uses those, uh, like, omni-words. Uh, but the only thing about that that we need to keep in mind is that David doesn't write this psalm strictly as a theologian giving us facts. Okay, he's writing this as a poet who is telling us about how his heart responds to those facts. Um, these truths about who God is leads him to respond in certain kinds of ways. And he writes it in poetry. Uh, and some of the obvious examples are what, like adoration, worship, are some of those obvious responses. But as we read through this, I think there's a little bit more to that. Right? It's not just like worship, it's not just adoration. Uh, like we said earlier, the Psalms aren't always so straightforward. Let me, let me try to illustrate this a little bit. Um, I want you to think about, have you ever told anyone these words? I've never told anyone else that before. I've never told anyone else that before. Maybe there is a, a scene that comes to your mind. Uh, I want you to think about how did you feel in that moment? Right? I've never told anyone this before. Did you feel relief or acceptance or fear? Maybe a combination of all of those. Maybe for you, the experience that comes to mind is you were sharing something with a close friend after keeping that secret in for so long, and it felt like when you, when you told them, this burden being lifted off your shoulders. Or maybe for others of you, your experience wasn't so positive, it was frightening, right? It was like terrifying, because you weren't sure how this other person was going to handle the information that you just shared with them. Right? Like you're giving them and you're trusting them to handle the fine china of your life. And so like there's a risk to telling them certain parts of yourself. Or maybe even to step beyond the illustration a little bit, like maybe this information about you didn't even come from you. Okay, like maybe it came from someone else and you were exposed or other people found out something about you that you had never told anyone else. And if that's the case, like that's just absolutely terrifying, Right? I think that what that shows us is to be deeply and truly known, it can either be our deepest longing or it can be our deepest fear. Right? It can be a terrifying experience or it can be one of the times that you have felt loved the most. I think it's human nature for us to want to be known. Right? We want people close. We want people to see us. But at the same time, maybe not too close. Maybe not too near out of this fear that if they know all there is to know about us, that we might be exposed or we might be rejected for this or that reason. Uh, the philosopher Sartre, uh, he has a famous quote where he said, 
Hell is other people. Okay, hell is other people. And what he meant by that isn't that people are the worst, um, which maybe you think they are, but what he meant by that is that the mere existence of other people means that you are always subject to their thoughts of you. Okay, and he actually, like, he, he has a play, he depicted hell as uh, this room in which you have to live in and everyone else is just watching you. They're not even blinking their eyes. They're just perpetually like gazing at you, watching every single thing that you do, no sleep, right? Never closing their eyes, always under their gaze. And I think that's what's going on for David in this psalm. That if the central truth of Psalm 139 is that God sees, he knows everything about you, he is with you wherever you go, then David says that is either extremely terrifying, or that is extremely comforting. Right? It is one or the other, depending on the type of relationship that we are talking about. Um, and I think in this psalm, actually, we see both of these things going on. But what we see is that there is a movement from one to the other. Okay, look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Right? This is a, a statement of fact. God has searched him and knows everything there is to, uh, about him. But then look at verse 23. This is how he ends the psalm. He says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. Right? God already knows all there is to know about him. And yet in verse 23, he says, search me, God, know me more. Right? If there's anything I don't know, if there's anything that hasn't been revealed to me yet, let me know that. Bring that to the surface. And so the question I want to ask for tonight is, how does he get there? How does he get there? How does David move from understanding God's complete knowledge of him as this inescapable, intrusive threat? And how do we get to verse 23? And it's this personal invitation for God's absolute scrutiny and greater self-knowledge. All right, let me kind of lay the roadmap for us. We have four points, as you guys have in your outlines. The first three are just David's declaration about who God is in relationship to him. Um, But I think rather than just being like completely distinct points, they build on each other. Okay, and we're going to see this. They build on each other. There's a progression. And as we put these pieces together, it's going to help us answer that big question. Um, I'm going to explain each of these sections. We're going to kind of think through a few implications of each of these truths. And then in point four, we're going to try to wrap it all together, tie it together, and answer that question. How does David uh, get to a place where he's inviting the knowledge of God into his life? Okay, so point number one. It's God, you know me. God, you know me. <coughs> And this is speaking of the doctrine of God's omniscience. Okay, God's omniscience. Uh, it's, uh, it means that God is all-knowing. That's verses 1 to 6. Uh, we see that, David, that God's knowledge of David is complete. Right? You look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And in verses 2 to 4, we get the extent of that knowledge. Okay? And we, what we see is that God's knowledge is not limited by some of the things that might limit our knowledge as human beings. Um, he uses this literary device called merism, uh, M-E-R-I-S-M, merism. And merism is you're using two contrasting parts, and it signifies the whole. Okay, so he says, for example, when I sit down and when I rise up. He's not just saying those moments that he's sitting down and the moments that he rises up. He's saying those moments and everything in between. Okay, similar, he says, my path and my lying down. So when he goes out and also when he's lying down, when he's out and about or when he's at rest. Those moments and everything in between. So whether you're doing this or you're doing that, whether you are here or whether you are there, whether you're at church or whether you're at home, he knows everything about you when you're on your way from church to home, 
right? When you're in the car rocking out to Taylor Swift by yourself or when you're picking your nose in traffic, God knows everything about you wherever you are. Whether you consider yourself a morning person or a night person, he knows the first thing that you do when you wake up, the last thing that you do before you fall asleep. He knows all of that and everything in between. His knowledge of you isn't dependent on where you go or what you're doing. Uh, Look at verse 3. He says, uh, You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. That word ways there, uh, it refers to your actions, the things that you do, but also your tendencies, the kind of person that you are, right? your strengths and your weaknesses. Uh, for us, there are certain things that we can do in front of others that impress others. Right? Or there are certain things that we can do that maybe like represent the kind of person that we want to become. But we also know that many other times, many other moments, there are things that we do that betray that kind of person we want to become. Right? There are many other things or many other moments that show us to be an entirely other kind of person. God knows our tendencies. That's what it's talking about. He's acquainted with all of our ways. Even more than that, God knows the things about you that haven't even been realized yet. Okay, the thoughts, the words, the actions that haven't even been like concretely shaped or made tangible uh, enough to be put in front of others. Uh, Verse 2, he says, David says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Okay, and that word afar is not uh, speaking to like spatial distance, like how some Christian guys observe that girl from afar, right? It's talking about time, right? Observing in advance from afar, Your future unformed thoughts have already been discerned by God. Uh, Verse 4, it says something similar. It says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. I want you to think about this. Have you ever thought about how much of our relationships with other people are dictated by that gap between our thoughts and our words? Right? Our thoughts and our words. Um, Think about who your closest friends are. Right? Your closest friends are those whom there is no gap, right? who you can speak your mind to, uh, those who you can turn your filter off around, and you can say every single thing that you're thinking. Think about who you call your acquaintances. Your acquaintances are those who there's a bigger gap. right? Like You don't always say what you're thinking. You say like carefully calculated uh, words. Right? You, you are very careful what you say. The less you can openly speak exactly what you're thinking, the more they are your acquaintance. And this gap between our thoughts and our words can lead to either like very calculated relationships or it can lead to like monumental conversations, right, that make or break your friendship. Like that, that, is, uh, that dictates a lot of our relationships with each other, right? But the crazy thing is that as much as our earthly relationships with other people are dependent on this, there is no such distinction with God. He knows all of it. He knows not just what you do, but what you think. He knows not just your actions, but even the hidden motives behind them. Now, let's think through this a little bit, okay? If this truth is, God, you know me, then what does this mean for us? Uh, if you weren't here with us on Sunday at Sunday School, this is kind of what we did, right? We took this central truth and we kind of uh, thought more deeply about it and we want to draw implications from it. Uh, and so if the truth here is, God, you know me, then what are some implications? I have two of them for us. One, there are things that we don't know. There are things that we don't know. Only God has infinite knowledge. 
Only God can tell the future. Only God can know perfectly the thoughts and the motives of other people and even the thoughts and motives of ourselves. Compared to God, we have infinitely more ignorance than knowledge. We have infinitely more ignorance than knowledge. And I think it's important for us to realize this because many of us have bought into this lie that everything is better if we have all the information. If I only knew what God wanted me to study, if I only knew what uh, like post-grad would look like for me, if I only knew the person that God wanted me to marry. We acknowledge that God knows everything, but we feel like we have to know it too. But we don't, right? And we can't. And I think a large part of Christian maturity and learning to live life is learning to be okay with that. Right? In fact, that's how Scripture uh, shows, or that's how scripture kind of defines what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing our limitations, and part of that is our limitation of understanding, our limitation of knowledge. Wisdom is accepting that very reality, and I think that's actually freeing when you think about it. Uh, Jen, Wilkin, he puts it like, Jen Wilkin puts it like this. Uh, she says, the past holds for him no missed opportunity. The present, hold, present holds for him no anxiety. The future holds for him no uncertainty. He was and is and is to come. Okay, so we don't know everything, only God does. Second, God knows and sees what others don't see. Okay, God knows and sees what others don't see. And similar to our big idea of God's knowledge of us, I think this can be something scary or this can be something good. Right? And if you read scripture, it actually speaks to both of those. Um, this is scary because when it comes to this category that we often call like hidden or secret sin, realize they're only secret and they're only hidden to other people, but not to God. Like that's scary when you think about it, right? That's something that you realize about your own sin. Uh, Ed Welch, he says that most sin is a temporary denial of how we live publicly. Or how about this? For God... The past is as vivid as the present. Now, for us, time generally brings relief to our conscience, even, if, uh, even for unconfessed sin, right? We feel like as time goes by, that sin is, fades from our memory and maybe even from God's memory. But that's not a thing for him, right? The past is as vivid, vivid as the present. When it says that God remembers our sins no more, in Hebrews, it doesn't mean that he forgets our sins as if memories fading away. It means that he commits to not count them against us any longer. Now, if God knows and he sees what others don't, then it means that we need to take certain sins, certain respectable sins that we might call them, that we can easily tolerate, like gossip or laziness or impatience. We need to take those things more seriously. Right? Just because other people might not see it or hear what we really think about them or just because we are somehow able to scrap together this like, finished product to present in front of other people, it doesn't mean that God doesn't see the rest of everything happening. So that's scary for us to think about, right? On the other hand, a God who sees is a comfort to those who have ever wondered whether God sees. Okay? God who sees is a comfort to those who have ever wondered whether God truly sees. It means that in your suffering, God sees. It means that those who are serving faithfully in the background, who maybe don't get recognized like others do, God sees. For those of you who are burdened by sin, 
God sees. Right? God sees not just the times that you stumble and fall and give in, but he also sees your repentance. He sees your, your repentant heart. He sees your confession. He sees your desires to commit your ways to him. Even when your life on the outside doesn't yet match up with your desire, God sees. In fact, I think one of the great comforts from Scripture is that it shows us that God, uh, the wonderful counselor, he doesn't just deal with us with some sort of like blanket treatment, right? He doesn't just deal with us all under this like broad category of sinner. No, he deals with the rebellious sinner differently than he, de- than he does with the disheartened and discouraged sinner. Right? He operates according to his personal and his particular knowledge of us. He sees, and that's a comfort to us. So verses 1 to 6, they show us that, God, you know me, right? You know me completely, even better than I know myself. And so what is David's response to all of this? Well, there's a, there's a recent phenomenon that I've experienced uh, that maybe you have as well. Okay, I'm on my phone at home. I'm scrolling through Instagram, uh, liking my friend's photos here and there. Uh, and then I come across this ad for a cheeseburger. Right? I don't make much of it, right? I just look at it, oh, a cheeseburger, until I realize wait, like I was just talking about having a cheeseburger. I scroll down more, scroll down more, there's an ad for plants. I realize, wait, my wife was just talking about plants. And I realize, wait, my phone is listening to me. Right? Maybe you guys have experienced that before. Your phone is listening to you and feeding ads to Instagram. And so, like, what do you, what do you, how do you do, or how do you respond in that situation? Right? Do you think, oh, like how convenient, right? I can like order a cheeseburger on Instagram. No, it's how do I change my privacy settings? Right? It's, it's how, like what else in my home is listening to me without me knowing it? Right? For someone else to have absolute and complete knowledge of who we are and where we are and what we're doing is not like we don't welcome it. It's intrusive and it's threatening. And I think that's just like a small taste of how David feels. Verse 5, he says, You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Uh, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And maybe you read that and you imagine God like hemming you in as him, like giving you this like nice, big, soft hug. Um, but it's interesting what David says here. Okay, the language that he uses here can be used uh, a couple of different ways. Okay, this language of hemming you in. Uh, in Job 1.10, it talks about God's protection around Job and his family. Right? Satan goes to, to God and he says, uh, Job only loves you because you put this hedge around his family. Right? You're protecting him. You're giving him all of this stuff and you're protecting him. Um, and that's, that's like God hemming Job and his family in. But elsewhere, 1 Samuel 23, 8, 2 Samuel 20:15, it can be also used to describe a siege, a military siege in which you're cornered, you're trapped by this enemy army. Right? There's like this mixed kind of reaction there. You're not sure if it's negative or if it's positive. Verse 6, similar idea. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Now, David is not just throwing around, throwing around words like maybe we do, like we say, that's wonderful or that's awesome to like literally everything, right? That's awesome. I think what David is saying is more along the lines of, this is too much for me. Like, this is wonderful. This is beyond me. Like, I'm reeling. This is blowing my mind. This is so far beyond me and above me. I don't know what I think about this. In other words, David wants to escape from God's knowledge. And I think that's what we see in this next section. Okay, point number two. God, you are with me. 
God, you are with me. So verses 1 to 6, they describe God's omniscience. Then uh, the omni word for verses 7 to 12 is omnipresence. Omnipresence. And that just refers to God is everywhere. He's everywhere. He isn't confined to being in one place at one time. Uh, Verse 7, David asked the question, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And it's almost like frustratingly rhetorical because as David works it out in verses 8 to 12, uh, the the inescapable answer is nowhere. Really, I can't go anywhere. I can't go anywhere outside of your presence. And I think there's like almost a sense of resignation in David's voice here. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. He says, whether I go to the highest place I can think of, um, heaven, or if I go to the lowest place I can think of, which is Sheol, this is whether I go as far east as I can go, which is the wings of the morning, right, where the sun rises, or as far west as I can go, the other, other part, uh, other, uttermost parts of the sea, which is, would have been west of them, the Mediterranean Sea. And he says, everywhere, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Verses 11 and 12, David says, not even darkness, not even darkness can provide a relief for him, right? Darkness is uh, nature's hiding place. Why? Because verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So David says, God, you are with me. And so again, let's let's work out this truth together. What are some implications of this? That God, you are with me. Well, one uh, is that God pursues. Okay, God pursues. Um, maybe you've experienced this before. Have you ever had that out-of-town friend that you've been more or less forced to host for the weekend? Right? Like, like you've planned, you know, their first day uh, together with them, but then you realize, oh, they're here for the rest of the week as well. Um, and so, like, at some point, they're just following you around. Right? You're not even hanging out with them. You're just, like, you're going grocery shopping. You're doing the things you need to do, and they just happen to be there because they need to follow you around. Right? Maybe, you have done, maybe uh, that's happened to you before. And your friend at that point, or a friend, <laughs> uh, they don't influence, right? they don't dictate, they don't guide the things that you do. They're just there. Right? They're just there. You're just stuck with them following you wherever you go. Now, when we say, God, you are with me, God is so much more than just the out-of-town friend. Right? He's so much more than just the pest who follows you around everywhere, the one who happens to be wherever you go. Rather, God pursues. And that means that he relentlessly and he graciously pursues you with intent. Okay, with intent. I think of the example of Jonah, the prophet. Right? He fled from preaching to the Ninevites. And when he ran the other way, God pursued him. Right? Not, just to get, not just to get Jonah to do what he wanted, which was to preach the Ninevites, but to expose to Jonah and to root out the ugly sin in Jonah's heart. Right? God pursued Jonah. One poet called this that God as the hound of heaven, right? sent out to pursue us and to chase us, even when we wanted nothing to do with him. Okay, so God, you are with me means that God pursues me, right? even when we don't want him to. He does it for our good and graciously. Another implication, I think, uh, from this is that darkness and light are not reliable indicators of God's presence with you. 
Okay, darkness and light are not reliable indicators of God's presence with you. And I think here we can understand darkness as maybe broadly those things that seem threatening to us from our human perspective. Okay, so things like sin or suffering. And I don't think David is trying to say that like those categories just don't exist at all because when you look in the rest of scripture, there are very, very prevalent categories. Um, but I think two things we know for sure that whether darkness or light, verse 10, it says that God's hand still leads you and it still holds you. And then two, it says that darkness and light from our perspective isn't the same thing as God sees from his perspective. And so we cannot trust our own perception of God's, uh, God's closeness to always be accurate. He's not just as close as we f- feel that he is. Okay, and that's, that's like our challenge in this lifetime. God is near whether we feel it or not. I think that's the message of several of the other Psalms, that you might feel like the world is falling apart and there is no guarantee that things will change anytime soon. But if there's one thing that is true, it's that God is nearer to you than you think. Okay, so darkness and light are not reliable indicators of God's presence with you. All right, that's point number two. God, you were with me. Point number three, uh, God, you made me. God, you made me. This is verses 13 to 18. And I hope as we're going through these points, like you're seeing how these truths about God are like building upon one another, right? They're not just distinct. They're related to one another. Uh, So we looked at God's omniscience, verses 1 to 6, God's omnipresence, verses 7 to 12. And then here, 13 to 18, we have God's omnipotence, okay? He is all-powerful. And here, specifically, God's power to create life, his power to create life. Uh, just to be clear, since verse 14 is like the famous coffee mug verse, right? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, the focus isn't on you, okay, as the creation. Like that's not the point of this psalm. It's not about you and to boost your self-esteem. It's about God as the creator. And to be fearfully and wonderfully made is a reflection of the artist who makes you like that. Okay? Now, if we go back to the darkness light illustration, right, verses 11 and 12, right before this section, um, what David does is he picks up on that as he continues to this next thought, and he says that not even the darkness, right, darkness, so to speak, of the mother's womb can hide him from God's face. Uh, Verse 15, he says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In fact, David says, God not only knew me at that point in time, He not only knew me, but he's the one who made me, right? That's why he knows me. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 16, it says that your eyes saw my unformed substance or my embryo, right? Your eyes saw my embryo. But it's not just the beginning of life that that God has carefully and intricately formed. David says, he says later, he says, in your book, was written every single day of my life. Okay, you can think of it that, this way, that God wrote your personal diary beforehand. Okay, he wrote that even before you've ever lived a day of your life. In fact, if you look at verse 18, uh, David says, I awake and I am still with you. Um, some commentators read that and they say that if David is continuing with this like theme of different stages of your life, then when he's talking about awaking, that there is this sense of like death and resurrection. He says, I die and I'm resurrected and God, you are still there. Okay, from conception to the last breath and even to resurrection. 
And so let's think through this again. What, is, what are things we can draw from this truth that, God, you made me? Well, I just have one here. It's that God's concern for us is based on the fact that he made us. God's concern for us is based on the fact that he made us. Okay, it's not based on our usefulness. It's not based on how smart you are. It's not based on what you can do. It's not based on anything that makes yourself worthy. It's because he created you. Right? It's based on the fact that you are his creation, that he carefully and intimately knit you together and he formed you. It says that his care for you extends from the beginning of your life to the very end. Look at verse 17. Uh, David says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. What does David mean there by the word thoughts? Right? God's thoughts toward him. I think here we're starting to move from this like idea of just knowledge, God's knowledge, and we're starting to move to God's concern. Right? God's concern, his thoughts toward David. From this awareness, this like omniscience to God's good intentions for David, his commitment to David. Now there are places in the Bible where the authors will take uh, a telescope, so to speak, and they point to things that are so much bigger, so much greater than us, like the stars or the galaxies or the heavens or the rest of creation. And the takeaway message for when they point us to these like great and amazing things is look at how amazing these things are and these things are just a glimpse of God's glory. Okay, there are passages that uh, like we, they give us a telescope to look at uh, these amazing parts of creation. <clears throat> But here in Psalm 139, rather than this telescope, David uses a microscope. And the takeaway message still applies, right? It's like, look at the fine intricacies of God's handiwork, and this is just a glimpse of his glory. Okay, so that's still true. But I think a pattern that we see in Scripture, that whenever these, like, quote-unquote, small things, these fine details are brought up, they're always tied to God's care and concern for his creation. Okay? It says that God knows the numbers of hairs on your head. And that's amazing, yeah. It also shows that he cares that much about you. It says that he cares, he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows, he takes care of the flowers of the field, and that's amazing, yeah. But it means that God cares that much more for you. So I think we can start to put all of these <clears throat> pieces together, which is that God knows everything to know about you, right? Our first point, he knows everything there is to know about you. Why? Point number three, because he made you. He is with you wherever you go because he's written every day of the book of your life. And so that leads us to our fourth point, and this is where we're going to try to tie it all together. God, search me and know me. God, search me and know me. Like we said earlier, these, uh, there are verses like verse 14 that often show up on coffee mugs, uh, but then there are other verses that you'll never see on coffee mugs. And I think in verses 19 to 22, like we get some of those verses that probably won't make the cut. Um, it talks about like killing his enemies and, and hating them and stuff like that. Uh, but how do these verses fit in this psalm? I think two, two ways. One, they are David's entrance back into the real world. Okay, like this is the context that this psalm is taking place. Like if you imagine him waking up from this like daydream or his thoughts 
uh, waking up from just his mind in verse 18, this is what he wakes up to. And there's enemies around him. And this is where he's going to have to apply God's knowledge of him. This is where it matters. So that's one. This is David's entrance back into the real world. But two, we've been talking about God's knowledge all throughout this psalm. And I think verses 19 to 22 show us that when God shines his light of greater knowledge of who he is and who we are, then there is this more obvious separation between holiness and sin. Right? When there is a greater knowledge of God and a greater knowledge of who we are, there is this greater, more obvious separation between that which is bad, which is sinful, and that which is like God, that which is holy. And from that, we learn to separate ourselves from what is wrong, verse 19. And we learn to hate what God hates, verses 21 and 22. But then we get to verse 23 and 24, and we see that it's not just around us. Right? We don't just learn to hate the things around us, but also within us. He says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. All right, so this is, we, we get to uh, that key verse that we've been talking to, or talking about. And, and so we, we've already seen throughout this psalm that God knows us fully. Right? That, like, that's just a statement of fact. That's just reality. God knows us fully, whether we invite him in or not. And so what is David talking about here? Like this is where we get back to that question, how does David move from understanding God's complete knowledge of him as this like inescapable intrusive threat and how does he start to understand this as this like personal invitation for God's, God's scrutiny and greater self-knowledge? Like how does he get there? Uh, let me try to illustrate. Uh, I've been watching the show Suits recently, um, PG-13 show, so watch with your parents. Um, the very little that I know about practicing law, being a lawyer, comes from that show, from what I see in that show. Anyways, there will be uh, different instances in that show where, like, Harvey Specter and Mike Ross, they're, they're working on a case, and something goes wrong in court, right? And so it's, like, no longer about the things that happen in the case anymore, but it's actually about, like, discrediting this other person, like, discrediting this other witness or this other attorney. And, like, <clears throat> and so what they do when that happens as they go to the file room, right, and they like kind of like comb through boxes and boxes of files, hoping to find that one thing, like that one piece of dirt that will help them put the other guys down, right? That will help them discredit that other witness or that other attorney. And maybe for you, like that's the picture that comes to mind when you think about being laid bare before God's searching knowledge. Maybe you think of an attorney searching out evidence to use against you, right? to dig up dirt against you. But I think from what we see in this psalm, a more appropriate analogy would be that of a doctor or a surgeon. Right? When you go to the doctor, when you go to the surgeon, um, or if you go to the doctor, you guys are college students, if you go to the doctor, you want him or her, no stereotypes, to be thorough in their evaluation of you, right? You want them to know you completely. Why? Because if there is something wrong in your body, then you want it to be detected and you want it to be removed. And so you're starting to put this all together. David can invite God's scrutiny, his knowledge of him, because he understands that God's concern, God's care for him, accompanies God's knowledge of him. 
God's care and the concern for him and God's knowledge of him. And God's knowledge of us isn't this cold, impersonal information. It is personal, it is intimate, it is wise, it is loving. It's a care and concern for his creation. That God's knowledge of us protects us, right? It hems us in. It pursues us. Where shall I go from your presence? And it is from God's knowledge of us that we learn more knowledge of ourselves. As John Calvin put it, he says, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. Knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Right? And in that order. That it is God's knowledge of us that not only points out that which is grievous in us, that's part of what we pray, but also it leads us, it graciously leads us, what, in the way everlasting. And so God's knowledge may be a threat, right, for some, but for us as believers, we know that it is a source of joy. That God's knowledge of us is how we are fully known and fully loved. God's knowledge of of us is, is being guided and protected and being led by the one who knows infinitely more than we do. God's knowledge of us is being shepherded by one by whom it says, as David says, even the darkness is not dark and the night is as bright as the day. And so if all of that is true, then we can pray along with David, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. We can pray that with confidence, knowing that it's for our good. We can speak to God about the dark corners of your life. And guys, I get it. Like, this is a prayer request that is both scary, but it is safe. It is a scary thing to tell God because God searching you and God knowing you uh, might mean, or and God revealing, like, any grievous way in you might mean that he uses circumstances, he uses things that bring that to the surface. He might bring suffering into your life that exposes that grievous way in you. That it reveals those flaws to you. And so it's scary, but for us, it's safe. It's safe because of the gospel. A.W. Tozer put it like this. He says, And to us who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us in the gospel, (coughs) how unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No tale-bearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspecting weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us. Why? Since he knew us utterly before we knew him, and he called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. As those who have trusted in Christ for our righteousness, right? Even more than David, we can be even more confident. We can be even more assured that that whatever we find in the darkest parts of our hearts, whatever God exposes to us, it never jeopardizes our standing before him. And that means that we can even reveal ourselves to others, right? Because the only acceptance who's, the only one whose acceptance matters, God, he will never reject us. He will never forsake us. He will never cast us away. And we ask someone we know uh, that is com- absolutely committed to us when he asks them to point out our flaws. Right? Even when it's hard, we, we can listen right? because we know it's good. We know where it's coming from. 
And so let me close by just giving you two really practical applications of this, okay? It's, it's one thing to pray to God, search me and know me. And I do hope you guys pray that, right? I hope you make that your daily prayer. Search me and know me, O oh God. If there's any grievous way in me, reveal that to me, right? Lead me in the way everlasting. It's one thing to pray that. But what are some ways that we can put ourselves in a position for God to answer that prayer? Okay, two practical ways. One, spend time in God's word. Okay, spend time in God's word. As we spend time in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit uses it to search our hearts, to allow us to know ourselves and God more deeply. Um, Hebrews 4.12, it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All right, so don't just read scripture like to check off a box or to think, oh, this, like, this makes me a good Christian. Read scripture and ask God, hey, like, use this to really reveal parts of my heart that I'm blind to. And then second, give others license to speak into your life. Give others license to speak into your life. Right, we learned earlier that God's knowledge of us is far, far superior to others, other people's knowledge of us. Right? Um, as, as wise as Pastor Kim, Kim is in his counseling from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, as much as he can give you things to think about and ways to describe your sin that maybe you haven't thought about, like, God helps us to know ourselves better than Pastor Kim ever can, right? Better than our own introspection can. But that's not to say that God doesn't use other people as his means to help us know ourselves more. Okay, so, so give others other people an open door to speak into your life. Give them permission to ask you the question, hey, can you check my heart on this? And even, get this, even if you haven't opened the door to them, okay, even if, like, you haven't invited it, even if what they have to say to you is unfair criticism, even if just 10% of it is true, and if you are sincerely asking God to search us, search me and know me, right, if that is your prayer, even if only 10% of it is true, that you can thank God for that 10%. Because God is using that to reveal any grievous way in you. All right, so give other people license to speak in your life. Let me close with this. Tim Keller, he wrote, um, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Let's pray. Father, you know us completely. And that is both a terrifying thing and a comforting thing. And we thank you, God, that because of the gospel, as people who have, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, that we are secure, that <clears throat> we can even invite your greater scrutiny into our lives. We can know that when, when you, the God of life, reaches in to the, the dark corners of our life and you, you peel back and you, you expose the darkness, that that is for our good, that that is you leading us in the way everlasting. So, Father, I pray as we go from here, we would take what we just heard and that we would understand more and more that your knowledge of us is a good thing and that from there we would learn to know ourselves better. Father, I pray that our prayer would be that of David. Search me and know me. Reveal to us any ways that we have gone astray. Lead us back to the cross. Lead us in the way everlasting. God, we thank you for your knowledge of us. 
Help us to know you more. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.